Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And James, we are joined. Uh, we're we're joined by a, a stellar guest. I think it's fair, fair to say. Um, uh, uh, you got your little black book out, and the black book has delivered. Um, who are we talking to today? <laughs> well, we're talking to, without doubt, the best-selling number one historian of the Second World War in the world today. He sold more books than anyone else by a country mile, and in more countries than anyone else by a country mile as well. And he was the man who absolutely, totally changed the game of narrative history of the war when his book Stalingrad came out in 1998. It is, of course, um, Sir Anthony Beaver. And Anthony, thank you for joining us, and, um, um, and brilliant to have you on the podcast at long last. Well, James, yes, you're quite right. We go back. Our friendship (laughs) goes back quite a long way, indeed. It's (laughs) certainly over 20 years. Um, And, uh, well, I mean, actually, a hell of a lot goes back over 20 years. I mean, in fact, I started the whole thing back in, uh, really, it was 1994. And I think the first meeting on the subject was actually in 1993, because I came up with this idea for a book which actually was going to go on from my previous book, which was called Inside the British Army, which was a social study. And um, I was interested in the way that whole of uh, so many things were changing, not just in this country, but in the world, of the, uh, the way that we saw the invention of the internet, Big Bang, uh, globalisation, all of these things. And I got rather excited about this. And I put in a proposal. And um, Elio Gordon uh, then said, my editor at Penguin at the time, uh, said, I think we'd better have a talk about this. And so I went with my uh, agent, Andrew Nuremberg, and uh, Elio said, listen, um, the trouble is, our fear is what you're writing about is fascinating, but at the same time, it's likely to be out of date, certainly by the time the paperback comes out, but even by the time the hardback comes out. So you can imagine, I was looking slightly crestfallen. She said, but then we got another idea for you, which is the Battle of Stalingrad. And then my jaw really dropped. And um, I had no idea. I mean, that stage, none of the archives were yet properly open. None of the military archives were yet open in Russia. Um, We had very young children. Um, It would mean months of research abroad. Uh, I had no idea. So I started to sound rather unenthusiastic about this project. And Andrew, my agent, kicked me under the table, basically signalling, this is a bloody good idea, and start sounding a bit more enthusiastic. 
<laughs> um, so I said, listen, I've got to discuss it with Artemis and say when I went home. And she said, well, you'd be a bloody idiot not to do it. Um, and that's how we started. And thank God Andrew was able to negotiate separate deals with German publishers, American publishers and British publishers because, you know, this was going to be a four-year uh, job with a huge amount of expense in travel, time abroad and all the rest of it. And that was really how it started. But also, at that stage, I was working on my German to get it back up to scratch. Uh, and there was no question of being able to learn Russian in that sort of time. But, but historian friends at Oxford said, listen, we can find you a young Russian historian. They're desperate for work and all the rest of it. Because remember, this was, this was uh, 1994 by then. Yeah, yeah. Which so was, it was just after the, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, it was after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it was coming on to the collapse of the ruble. Um, I mean, Russia was in a really bad state at that particular time. But we had a great friend in Moscow who said, listen, I, first cousin of my husband, you know, she might possibly work. And this happened to be Luba, who was 21 at the time. Uh, and the wonderful thing was that um, Luba was not, I didn't want a Russian historian because they would have their own take, their own attitudes, their own view. And Luba was working on her PhD on plant biology. I thought, perfect. I want, I want somebody, you know, who's, <laughs> somebody who's really intelligent, but I did not want a professional historian. And when we, we went off, we set off by going down to Volgograd uh, by train, uh, sharing a compartment with a Russian colonel and his wife. And he was fascinating. He was, he was, he, he was infantry. Uh, he was fascinating. He was cross-questioning me the whole time about uh, what I was working on and how it happened. And I talked about the German archives. And when I told him about the number of Russians who had been actually fighting with uh, the Germans at Stalingrad at the end, these were the heavies who were yeah. uh, put into German uniform. Um, he was simply appalled. Um, and he said they weren't Russians, i.e. the very fact that even though they'd been forced by starvation uh, to acting as auxiliaries for the Sixth Army, um, as far as he was concerned, you know, uh, they were enemies. They were no longer Russians. So, um, so that was completely taboo still in the 90s, that, that aspect? Oh, yes. Of and I mean, Luba was telling me, even up to the end of the 90s, whenever you applied for a job in Russia, you had to put down whether you had any member of the family who'd even been captured by the Germans in the Second World War. And this was over 50 years after after the end of the Second World War. Anyway, to go back to the way things had developed, while I'd been working mainly on the German stuff beforehand, I'd been intrigued right from the start. I'd read this book called Last Letters from Stalingrad. Mm. And this was one of the great bestsellers of the 1950s. Um, and the more I read the book, this book, the more I was fascinated. I thought this was fantastic. But then, uh, shall we say, uh, doubts and queries arose in my mind because <laughs> it was too well written. I mean, it was much too literary. Yeah. Um, and the final story was about a concert pianist whose fingers were broken. And you thought, hang on, hang on, hang on. Mm. And as soon as I got to uh, the archives in Germany, to Freiburg, 
the Bundesarchiv Militärarchiv. And I started looking at some of the original letters, which had been the real last letters from Stalingrad, which had been flown out on the last aircraft. Um, one started to see straight away the comparison, because all the soldiers who were trapped there, the officers, were saying, uh, basically, sort of, you know, I can only write a couple of lines, and their handwriting was appalling, because, of course, their hands were frostbitten. And you knew immediately, actually, that these famous letters, last letters from Stalingrad, had actually had actually conned a whole generation of Germans who were sort of longing to see some sort of glory or yeah. some sort of artistic benefit out of this terrible disaster. Um, and then I find actually, of course, somebody had beaten me to it. There was a German historian who'd actually proved docu in documentary style, in fact, that these really had actually been put together and then rewritten by somebody called Heinz Schroter, who was actually being, who'd been the uh, chief of the propaganda company of the Sixth Army, who actually hadn't even been within the Kessel, within the encirclement in the battle at the end. Mm. But anyway, I mean, there were lots of fascinating times there uh, in the archives, and I was helped by various friends. Uh, what, in Germany? In Germany, yes, in yeah, Freiburg. Yeah. Because well, Freiburg, I mean, how did you... I mean, because every time I go to Freiburg, I'm always, I'm always <laughs> staggered by just how chaotic it is. Um, and, 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 and you sort of, you know, there's no sort of Vorsprung Dirch technique there. It's, it's, it's an incredible place, and obviously the archives they've got are just absolutely phenomenal, but, but it, it, takes quite a, it takes a bit of mastering, doesn't it? Well, it does, and it was an absolute disaster when, uh, for reasons of the move to Berlin and the move away from Bonn, uh, for German government offices, um, that they moved the uh, Militärgeschichtsforschungsamt, which was the main research group of the uh, Bundeswehr, uh, from Freiburg um, to Potsdam. Uh, because it meant that they had priority over the documents and say so you could go to Freiburg and find that you had to wait for another four weeks or whatever before you could see certain files. But fortunately, in those days, everything was still there. And I had uh, a couple of friends in the Forschungsamt um, who were a huge help because suddenly I realised that um, when it came to the question of the autopsies carried out on why German soldiers were dying so rapidly in Stalingrad, um, there had been a, an article written by a professor of history at Heidelberg University um, which I, I didn't, didn't think was quite right, and it was based on the work of a professor, uh, Hans Gurgensen. And I suddenly thought, well, I know it's a ridiculous uh, possibility, but I looked in the local telephone directory and found that this guy <laughs> lived two streets away from the archives. Well, I mean, I asked uh, Detlef Vogel, one of the, uh, one of the historians at the uh, Forschungsamt, would he come with me? Because I mean, this was so important to, to get it correct. And he was longing to talk. He was, when he was into his 90s. But my God, all, all the marbles were there. And the, the, what he had discovered, and which had been completely misunderstood by this other historian, um, was that actually it was the combination not just of malnutrition, but of stress and of cold, which had completely upset the metabolism, the Stoffwechsel, as of course it is in Germany, um, the um, stuff change, quite literally, mm. um, of the German soldiers, and the reason why they were dying in such an accelerated fashion, 
um, was because this had actually wrecked their metabolism and they were only able to absorb about 50% of the calories. And he said, you know, you think, you think about your Irish prisoners going on hunger strike or whatever in Britain, uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, he said, but you know, these guys weren't even surviving a quarter of that particular time um, when those guys were eating nothing. And this was the reason, and he'd actually had to defrost the corpses um, in bunkers, in bunkers, so as to find. And of course, he found that there was absolutely no fat in any of these bodies at all. So anyway, I mean, there were sort of details like that. And then on a much grander scale, thanks to various German friends in London and elsewhere, uh, they started putting me in touch with people who had been there but had been flown out of the encirclement Mm. at the last moment. Um, And one of the most extraordinary days of my life was interviewing uh, Winrich Baer. He was a young panzer officer briefed by Manstein um, saying, listen, Hitler will not trust anything he hears from any of the generals. He thinks we're all total pessimists. But you, as a young uh, panzer officer with a knight's cross, black uniform, knight's cross at the neck and all the rest of it, um, he will listen to you. And so, having been briefed by Manstein, then briefed by Paulus, he was then flown to the Wolfschanze in East Prussia uh, to tell Hitler. And Manstein, a warning, he said, Hitler will try to interrupt you straight away and tell you, in fact, that the situation's rosy, that, you know, panzer armies are going to be formed here and there, and that um, Stalingrad will be relieved. Well, that's exactly what happened, until Baer, remembering what Manstein had told him, then interrupted Hitler and said, Mein Führer, I must be, I have been ordered, you know, to tell you. And this is when he basically shows that all of Goering's bullshit about saying we can feed the whole of the Sixth Army, 330,000 men, we can feed, feed them with uh, air dro- um, airlifts and all the rest of it, um, was proved to be totally wrong. And Hitler pretended to take Baer's side, but then immediately, as soon as he got Baer to stop talking, then he then came up again with his optimistic scenarios and all the rest of it. And Baer described, he said, I have to admit, he said, I believed in Hitler. I wasn't a Nazi, but I believed in Hitler and all the rest of it. You know, I was a passionate German nationalist. Um, But I could actually see that this man was mad. I couldn't. uh, And the trouble was they wanted to hit. uh, Hitler said, now you must fly back and tell tell, uh, uh, General Paulus, not yet Field Marshal, but tell General Paulus all I am telling you about uh, what we are going to achieve. Uh, But General Schmundt, who is Hitler's adjutant, immediately saw that Baer actually had been completely disenchanted and completely uh, disbelieved everything that Hitler told him. And he made sure that he didn't fly back. And that, of course, saved Baer's life. You interviewed Baer in in Berlin, did you? No, it uh, it was in his country home. Um, um, And what was was he like? I mean, was he... I I mean, well, he was absolutely charming. I mean, he was very very Anglophile. In fact, all of his friends, um, he was called Finrich Baer, and they all referred to him as Teddy Baer. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, no, I mean he was charming, and then the other other was of course General Freitag von Loringhoven, who was who was the, one of the in fact with the 16th Panzer Division, um, the very first to reach the Volga at Stalingrad, um, and I mean you know all of his experiences, and then he 
as a uh, sort of key panzer officer, was again one of the ones to be flown out as experts to rebuild what was going to be a future Sixth Army, which was again Hitler's uh, way of trying to prove uh, that somehow, you know, the army went on and had not been destroyed at Stalingrad. So again, it was all a part of this sort of tremendous... And, and he was still alive in the 90s? Uh, yes, he was indeed. This was, uh, this was wow. yes, 1994. But I mean, you know, for Goodness myself, me. I don't know, but it's amazing how many of these guys lived on afterwards. I mean, when I did the Berlin book, you know, and I was researching that another four or five years later, um, I interviewed chief of staff of the 11th Army. I mean, you know, this was a chief of staff of an army who was still alive. Some of them were very healthy and they lived a very long time. Uh, did, <laughs> did, did, did you feel that they, they were trying to set the record straight, that they felt they had to explain? Explain exactly what had gone on. Their 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 sort of view of things had been elbowed aside by the history so far. Was was, was oh, that yes. their attitude? Well, their attitude was also what they hated was the idea that, for example, I mean, Freitag von Loringhoven complained to me bitterly. He said, you know, there was this German film. They 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 filmed me, and there they had on the bottom, you know, a line saying, um, Freitag von Loringhoven, Nazi officer. I was never a Nazi. Well, this fascinated me because I remember, and in fact, I was attacked over three pages in Spiegel because the NATO reports, uh, sorry, the Schaaf reports, um, had shown how when they interviewed German officers, uh, they'd said, yes, it was, a great, it was a great mistake to persecute the Jews, you know. Just think of the wonderful weapons that they could have made for us, um, you know. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you thought, hang on a second, I've just shaken this guy's hand. Well, that was a hand which had shaken Hitler's hand. Um, it was always a very strange... Uh, I mean, I, I didn't... Freitag von Norringhofen was not a Nazi, but at the same time, you know, he was serving Complicit. the Nazi regime. Yeah, I'm just uh, seeing here, he died in 2007. There died in 2000. There you are, there you are. Gosh, um, and his, his son, who's a German diplomat, who I like enormously, um, was, until very shortly ago, he was uh, number two at NATO. Um, you know, uh, so, Amazing. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary way, way that sort of history has evolved. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting off the subject. And, uh, no, 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 it's all fascinating. It's all great. But, I mean, you were able to, to really sort of delve deeper into the German experience in Stalingrad in a way that no one had done before, weren't you? Well, one of the great advantages was, of course, that one of the things I'd sensed right from the start, and this will come back to the Russian side too, uh, is that the most reliable reports are always those by outsiders attached German divisions, i.e. the doctors and the priests. Um, also, those who were flown out at the end, like Freitag Lohenhofen, like uh, many of the others who were flown out at the end, they knew that their lives were being saved, and they knew that those left behind in the encirclement, in the Kessel, yep. as the Germans called it, were yep. all going to die. Yep. And they felt a need to <clears throat> testify, uh, every single one of them as they came out. And those reports were the most honest of all in the German archives. There's no doubt about yeah. it. You know, they, they and they're all in Freiburg, were they? They're all in Freiburg, and they felt a real sort of moral duty to uh, record exactly what happened and why it was going to be so appalling. And one has to remember that, um, you know, of the officers and senior, sorry, the senior officers in the imprisonments uh, and the prison camps afterwards, only 5% of the, se of the senior officers actually died. 
most of them survived, and they some of them didn't return until Germany until 1955. Well, not least people like Huber, who was famously pulled out. Derman. But when it came to the ordinary soldiers who were put to work by the uh, by the Soviets and who were nicknamed Stalin's horses, ninety-five uh, percent of they d- of them died. Gosh! So I mean, it gives you an idea that you have this thing whereby uh, the great irony was that, of course, in the Soviet Union, um, the senior officers were looked after uh, and kept alive, and the ordinary soldiers were the ones who were worked to death. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a second. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I are talking to Anthony Beaver about writing Stalingrad. Did you find German prisoners of war um, in the Soviet archive, you know, talking or were they saying what they wanted, the, they thought their captors to hear? Or were, you know, how, how uh, when you're reading those sort of reports, how can you tell what the men are really saying and what they really mean? How do you, how does one, how does a historian's nose for the, for the, the right thing come in there? Well, I'll, I'll come on to that. That's a very important question. I'll come back to that in a second. Okay. But the first, um, uh, the first line of interrogation was the seventh department of the NKVD. This is remember, Smirsch is not doesn't become uh, into existence until the following spring. Hmm. Um, but these are what was partly described as the OOs, the uh, uh, the special detachments of uh, the NKVD, and especially the seventh department, which did the interrogations. And I remember being shaken on one of the very first uh, interviews that we read was um, uh, subject died, died of his wounds halfway through the interrogation. So I mean there they were literally interrogating, you know, the badly wounded soldiers who were obviously, or maybe this was a euphemism that they were sort yeah. of beaten up. I don't think that there was extreme torture being applied in um, some of those cases, unless it was they were uh, Let's say we're sort of, you know, being beaten up by ordinary soldiers rather than NKVD. I mean, the thing was that they were desperate for information. And interestingly, one of the chief things they were wanting to know was what was the effect of RAF bombing on their families at home in Germany? 
Um, and this was something which Stalin wanted to know very, very carefully, especially before he saw Churchill. How fascinating. That's a fascinating detail. Uh, but sort of detail, de- you know, a little detail there. But let's go back to uh, Russia and then we'll come on to the whole question mm. of uh, uh, the reactions. It was very split, we'll see, the, the reactions between um, those who blamed Hitler for basically abandoning them at Stalingrad um, and those who were still not loyal Nazis to the end. But um, as I say, we'll, we'll get on to that in a moment. Um, well, there I was, fortunately, with Luba. Um, and suddenly we heard that Pikoya, the Minister of the Archives under Yeltsin, had forced the military archives to open. Um, so we went to the Ministry of Defence um, to have a meeting with Colonel Rumanstiev, who was the colonel on the general staff, who was basically supervising the archives. Uh, and they were also being supervised by the GRU, but we'll, that was a, another character later. Anyway, so Romanstiev said uh, to me, um, he said, we have a simple rule in our archives. He said, you tell us the subject, we choose the files. <laughs> there, was, there was no point trying to say to him, well, hang on, Colonel, uh, that's not how it works in most archives. Um, I knew well enough to keep my mouth shut on that. Um, so what I said was that, um, uh, yes, well, you see, in Freiburg, because I'd been there to give you an idea uh, of the sort of material, um, you know I'm writing about Stalingrad and so forth. And I, that's when I said, you know, the most interesting material um, to convey what the fighting was like for the soldiers on both sides were the descriptions written or recorded of doctors and uh, priests attached to German divisions. Roar of laughter from the colonel. No priests in the Red Army. And I said, no, I know there were no priests in the Red Army. But from my point of view, I think the political department, the commissars, um, their reports will be the most interesting. <laughs> and, and this turned out to be absolutely the gold dust. I mean, all the gold, ma- golden material in the, those archives. Amazing. And he said, well, we'll that's see. A good, that's, a, that's a very shrewd nose on your, on your part, though. Well, I mean, if, you, if you think about it, if you think about it, you know, and actually it, the reason why it was even more uh, true was that Stalin did that again, rather like Hitler not trusting his own generals. Stalin didn't trust his own generals at Stalingrad because I mean, on many occasions hmm. he was hearing rumours that Stalingrad had fallen, but nobody had dared <coughs> to admit it. Um, so hmm. the material that we found was that um, there had been every single night between 15, 25, 30 pages of reports from the political department of the Stalingrad Front was being flown back to Moscow every single night for Stalin to see first thing the next morning. And there, there was no lies at all. There was no propaganda bullshit because Stalin had to know exactly the truth of what was happening. So you had you had the genuine bravery and you had the genuine scandals of drunkenness of commanders, uh, soldiers crossing over to the enemy, uh, surrenders, whatever it might be. Um, and you knew that this was something you'd never find in any other Soviet archive of something which had nothing to do with the party line. It was purely this. But anyway, the point was, finally, Luber and I were allowed into Podolsk, which was the central archive of the Ministry of Defence, where all of this material was. And we were shown into the office of Colonel Shuvashin, who was the deputy uh, director of the archive. 
And Shu Vaishin actually was a very amusing uh, um, uh, character. We found ourselves from the very first morning having to work on the other side of his desk while he bellowed into the telephone. And it was <laughs> typical Soviet, um, you know, alpha male behavior. Uh, to emphasize that when he was the more senior, he would stand up and shout into the telephone. And one moment he slammed down the telephone, he pointed at it, he said, Soviet 1960s model, it would be easier to shout to Moscow. <laughs> I mean, Podolsk, Podolsk was two hours travel, you know, every single morning. I and mean, we had to get up at about four in the morning. Oh, um, my God. Or, so to be able to get the combination of, of bus uh electric car and then another bus and all the rest oh of it together. my goodness it was a bloody nightmare <laughs> and luba luba i mean to give you an idea there was i snoozing on the train and, and luba was learning dutch i mean it was unbelievable <laughs> i mean she's she is she's a amazing. remarkable person she's she? an astonishing person um anyway we arrived and i said to luba in advance we've got to be really really careful you know, right on the right from the start, and I made sure that we didn't have anything uh, possibly uh, dangerous with our bags or anything like that, um, because we were not allowed to use anything from. Um, I mean, the pencil and paper was all we were allowed. So no, no, no computer, uh, no camera, nothing. And um, anyway, so we found, and then we found that actually they had extracted. All of the things, including, thank God, um, all of the reports from the Stalingrad front, NKVD, to be sent back, sent back to Moscow. And every single uh, item which we were allowed to look at was marked by a piece of paper. Everything else was forbidden. So, in fact, we weren't supposed to be looking at any of the stuff that I wanted to see. Um, so I said, Luba, come on, we've got to play this one carefully. So we just went into things like some of the interrogations. There, but didn't seem to worry about the interrogations. So we started on that. <coughs> come half past 11, the door suddenly opened. And there was this guy. It was hot weather in Moscow. Um, and he had a Hawaiian beach shirt, a moustache and dark glasses. <laughs> and this was Colonel Gregor Yurovich Starkov, GRU, who was overseeing the whole thing. And Starkov wasted no time at all. He said, um, what are you interested in? Are you looking for negative material? Um, and I tried to give the usual historians um, stuff about sort of the duty of objectivity of the historian. Cut no ice with Colonel Starkov whatsoever. And he said, right, he said, right, it's now time for lunch. I thought it was a bit early, but anyway, he said, right, it's now time for lunch. You can leave all your bags and papers here. Um, the canteen is up the road and all the rest of it. Um, <laughs> my God, the food was disgusting. I mean, the soup, there were all bits of meat and there were all of these uh, uh, mangy cats around. And I thought, oh, my God, how many of those have disappeared into that soup? And Luba kept on saying, Anthony, you're really spoiled. You're really spoiled. Well, I had to admit, yes, I probably was. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> when we got back, when we got back, of course, we found that they'd been thrown our bags, as we had imagined. And, but to our astonishment, and this is fascinating in terms of quite often the Russian character, this mixture of paranoia followed by a naivety. I mean, sometimes it can go the other way around. Because then we found that we were being left unsupervised in a lecture hall down the road. We were no longer in Shuvashin's office with all of these piles of files. Um, including the real stuff on the reports being sent back to Moscow each night. 
and so of course we started work as fast as possible. Luba, Luba doing you know fast rapid translation while I was writing as fast as I can. But the one thing I knew in advance was that I had to be bloody careful, and so I had brought lots of ring-sparred uh, notebooks so I could just tear out the pages without them showing that they were missing. Um, and then after I had a batch, I would fold them up and put. I would trouser them. Um, just in case we were interrupted. And it was like cheating in an exam almost, because as soon as we heard, heard footsteps in the corridor, Luba had kept her finger in one of the permitted passages and immediately would, would flip back. And we managed to get away with that for 10 days uh, before, sudden, before <laughs> they suddenly realised that um, we were spending rather too long on these particular, on these particular files. I mean, there was a roughly a 500 pages per month of the battle, uh, which had included, thank God, as I say, these, um, the, the NKVD reports back to Moscow. Well, I then, then found Starkov suddenly reappeared and then we got, because he, he was obviously starting to be suspicious. Um, and he said, we must uh, inspect all your notebooks. And I said, well, listen, I got very bad um, handwriting, uh, but I'm perfectly happy because I knew perfectly well that um, they didn't have any interpreters in Prodosk, as I say, two hours from Moscow. Uh, so they'd be having to bring interpreters down every day. So I said, listen, why don't I, um, you know, I'll bring in all of the uh, notebooks, you know, at the end and you can check through them all and your interpreters can and all the rest of it. Obviously, then discussed this and they agreed. I mean, the point was not to say no or not to sort of, you know, be difficult. You've just got to be sort of play slightly the stupid Englishman as of sort of, you know, um, it's, all, it's all straight bat stuff and all the rest of it. And on the very last day, they had two interpreters, uh, both of them GRU, one could tell from the tabs on the uniforms and all the rest of it. Um, and the very one, first one, um, it was quite interesting. He said, uh, Mr. Beaver, he said, it's true. Uh, is it true you're writing a novel? <laughs> and I said, well, no. I said, uh, you will see that uh, uh, as you go through the notebooks, you know, that I have uh, uh, recorded the form, uh, you know, document um, and all the rest of it of each particular thing. Uh, because what I'd had to do in the meantime was, as you might imagine, bulk it out with as much material uh, and hide all the stuff which actually came from the really important uh, reports back to Moscow. And uh, they, uh, this seemed to be all right. I mean, we managed to get away with it. And I'd been staying with uh, the Canadian political attaché, who was a friend and had been a huge help. At the very first night, actually, he'd asked me, do you want to ring your wife back in London if they'd arrived safely and all the rest of it? And I did. I rang her back and I started to say, I cannot believe it, but we've been, let, we've been left, you know, with this stuff. Suddenly I saw him making uh, signals of cutting your his, cutting his throat shut up. Uh, because, of course, I'd rather naively forgotten that, of course, um, any diplomat's um, telephone was likely to be bugged or whatever. Yeah. And he said, for God's sake, he said, you know, don't even t when we go out to dinner, don't even talk about it you know, just in case you're overheard. Um, and so, you know, it was a little bit... Uh, and then very on the very last day, uh, when I got back and I saw Chris, and I said, well, it seems that uh, uh, they, they, they passed, you know, what they saw in the, in the notebooks. I mean, at one point, I only thought, my God, I'm going to have to start to bulk this out with writing uh, letters of praise to Comrade Stalin myself, because, you know, <laughs> the, um, the bulk... Many of the, many of the stuff, the permitted material, which they'd uh, allowed us to see... Uh, had actually been letters of praise to Comrade Stalin from soldiers at the front. Um, and, uh, but anyway, Chris said, listen, we're going to go into the Canadian embassy first thing tomorrow morning and we'll photocopy all your notes just in case. Uh, because he said they can still 
remove they could be they know when you're flying out they could easily you know you could find every single piece of paper taken away um so that was a huge relief to be able to walk as is sheremetyevo airport you know to walk to the exit and thinking you could take the whole bloody lot they were far more interested in those days about um smuggling caviar out um so i i made no uh, i made i made no mistake in that particular direction but it it was an idea and then of course there was a huge number of other uh, archives in those days which had opened up um and this is where of course we came across all of grossman's vasily grossman's original notebooks um which then later when talking to christopher macleahose and others you know they said listen you must you must publish um which led to which led to a wonderful revival thank god of uh, interest in grossman and above all in life and fate and um when it was translated into other languages suddenly a sort of you know spain france germany and all the rest of it was a a, a huge reawakening of interest in grossman so that certainly um was a bonus because and he was ukrainian wasn't he well yes indeed bialdichev um it's a question of if you like how you identify yourself he identified himself as russian um not as ukrainian necessarily uh and then of course suddenly having never really seen himself as jewish uh realized as a result of the thorough antisemitism which especially came out in 1945 grossman then very much more identified himself as jewish Yeah. But anyway, there were lots of other as I say, lots of other archives. Um some of them were more complicated than others, you know. The Dragon Lady in the archive who was always, you know, the, the director. Uh actually no, she was always the deputy director. Um and she was always far more fearsome while the director was usually terribly relaxed and civilized and uh, um and they could actually I mean in the RGVA I mean you know I remember the way that they would uh, um you would be allowed 10 files a day only um but then they would hold back six of them saying we haven't had time to look through them and there was uh, I remember one young artist actually saying to Luba um she said um um she said i cannot understand it she said you know this material is so secret it should never be shown to any foreigner uh which was quite revealing in itself and in fact she then admitted to luba that she herself was not allowed to read what was inside it and this is why she couldn't understand why it was being allowed uh, to be seen by a foreigner um it was only the deputy director who had the right to look through these files So one sees this extraordinary as I say mixture of this sort of paranoia and uh, these contradictions uh, very much in their in their attitude. And and Anthony did you find it I mean did you find the whole experience sort of exhilarating or did you find it just completely depressing? I mean it's it's such both, a grim both, tale. Both. both you're quite right. Um and incredibly mixed feelings most of the time. I mean you know I remember for months afterwards Uh I mean it wasn't as bad as Berlin where the horrors particularly you know the mass rapes and all the rest of it the following book but I mean in Stalingrad the stories of starvation I mean you realize there were 10,000 civilians still left alive in Stalingrad uh at the end um of whom 1,000 were children who were completely feral couldn't speak they they they'd lost sort of the power of normal communication they'd lived off roots uh or stealing food from the germans if they went until they were killed um and yes because um, because the, the russians would the snipers would shoot them wouldn't they exactly the russian snipers are quite i i mean they had a form of um brutality of uh um 
I mean, no German, no British army, no French army, no American army would have survived Stalingrad. We simply did not have the ruthlessness that the Russians had. And as you rightly say, you know, they, the snipers had orders to shoot down Russian children uh, who'd been offered a crust of bread by German uh, infantrymen to, to get their water in from the Volga and yeah. to fill their water bottle from the Vol- Volga. Um, and it, it showed, I think, you know, the, the way that, say, they, that ruthlessness uh, made sure that they actually survived in a way that foreign armies wouldn't have done. I mean, uh, uh, there have been uh, accounts and disputes on John Erickson came up with the figure mm. of 13,000 executions during the whole of the Stalingrad campaign. Uh, now, that was, that was almost the equivalent of two slightly understrength divisions. Yeah. Um, others have said, hey, no, this is not true, uh, but later, but that's relying purely on an official Soviet sources. Um, but I mean, you know, I think one can see from some of the accounts uh, the way that sort of executions were carried out. Uh, usually, the the uh, firing squad was uh, given vodka beforehand, and of course, that well, I remember there was there was one that that has really stayed with me because I obviously I read it when it first when when we were first working on it in '98, and. I remember there was a young um there was a young red army officer who arrived at the front and he'd been there not an hour and some and 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 a couple of his men deserted so he was executed for allowing his men to desert he, did, he hadn't even met them he didn't even know they existed and it was just and I and I just and I remember at the time being I mean this this was I guess the kind of, you know, in a way, the sort of start of my interest in this subject, because I'd never really read a book on the Second World War until I read Stalingrad. Absolutely no interest in me at all. And I just remember so shocked by this. And, and it's an image that's, or, or, a, or a passage that's just stayed with me ever since. It's, it's, you know, how can you get to that situation where you're, where you're executing one of your own for, for, for such a, patently nonsensical reason i mean you know how has it got to this and i think that's the bit that's kind of stayed with me really well it was during that particular period of research um that you know i first heard um from actually a member of the british embassy at the time um how there were close to five thousand suicides each year amongst the russian conscripts uh because of the bullying the hazing and all the rest of it um, and we're seeing the same thing in Ukraine. You know, this, they treat, and I'm, this is a, I mean, I get constant questions on the subject, you know, yeah. why is the Russian army so brutal? Why is it so inhuman? Um, well, I mean, you know, that's a long, we're not covering that, that here at the moment. But I mean, one thing is absolutely certain is that they are often treating their own men as badly as they treat the enemy. Yeah. Uh, and you know it's it, it, it's a, a process of inhumanity which is uh, very hard to explain there, there are a number of reasons and all the rest of it but it's become self-perpetuating um and as i say the ukrainians are suffering from it at the at this at this very moment as well as the russian conscripts themselves yeah 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 i mean you know it's 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 getting up worse. Well, Twenty five years this year, I guess, since it's since it was published. Um, I mean, how do you how how do you feel about it looking back? I mean, do, have you ever revisited it? I mean, obviously, you you still get asked to do talks, and people ask you about it, and and you know, 
you know, you get a, a begging email from me saying, come on the podcast. I mean, I mean, do, are, are you sort of, I mean, it is, you, you know, no one can really supersede this because no one else is going to get into the Russian archives. So, so, so it, it, it's interesting because generations of historians co- constantly kind of evolve and there's kind of new ways of looking at things and people unearth new, new material. But, but in a way, this one just is going to stand forevermore because you can't, I can't envisage a time where someone could get greater access to the material that you've got you had 25 well, years ago well i was phenomenally lucky on timing you know there yeah. i was you know with of years, being worried that i'd never be able to get in at, at any of this stuff and it was that period of openness that sweet point uh, yeah uh just before just before things closed down really in 2000 and i mean that's when for example catherine merridale uh working on that her superb book ivan's war um, you know, suddenly found that all of the barriers have been coming down. I was warned about it a year before by Leonard Samuelson, a Swedish uh, historian, um, on the first stage when the FSB started to check on what foreign historians were looking at. Uh, and many of this pressure, just remember, this was before Putin took over. Um, and it was really a reaction within the Duma of the Communist Party and the extreme nationalists, the Zinsky and so forth, um, who said, you know, our history is going to be, our history is being betrayed, you know, we should never have allowed foreigners in and all the rest of it. Mm. And so they started to have limits, for example, that you could send in a Russian historian with a shopping list. Uh, but they would then have to show their notebooks at the end, and if there was anything they didn't like in the notebooks, that had to be destroyed or removed or whatever it might be. Um, so there was there was, was control. But I was also, as I say, I was so lucky that you know whether it was on the German side, there were some of these people were still alive, and you could you could talk to them and get a feel for what it had been. Even though one's always got to be very very careful about memory and uh, and how effective and how uh, reliable it is. Um, and I remember, you know, Anne Applebaum was working uh, at the same time on her Gulag book. And in fact, yeah, yeah. I remember um, a dinner we had and uh, uh, Anne said to me, um, she said, you know, do you get this? She said, whenever I try to interview some of the old male survivors from the Gulag, um, they simply say, basically, don't answer, ask any questions, don't interrupt, I'll tell you what happened. And I said, well, from the point of view of the male Red Army soldiers, yes, that quite often does happen uh, to us. Um, but I said, you know, the women, um, for example, the women anti-aircraft gunners and the medics, yep. who are phenomenally brave at Stalingrad, um, you know what they are telling you is the truth. They kept their eyes open and their mouths shut at the time. But with the men... Um, you had to be that much more careful because they, who had been so humiliated by the Stalinist system, now found themselves in control of history, i.e. there were these foreign historians coming to interview them, um, and they always had to be at the centre of events. Oh, I saw Marshal Zhukov, I spoke to Marshal Zhukov, whatever it might be, you know. Um, And you know that that was bullshit. They would still come up with some interesting details, you know, and it was still worth doing. And you could tell almost instinctively what was true and what was sort of slightly invented after the time. But with the women, no, as far as they were concerned, the suffering had been so great. But, you know, just simply what they just described, as I say, whether those anti-aircraft gunners for taking on the tanks at Stalingrad or the the medics carrying uh, or dragging the wounded down to the riverbank... 
you knew that they weren't inventing anything at all. Um, and uh, I think Anne agreed, you know, that the women were far more reliable uh, as source material when it came to interviews. Fascinating. Wow. Well, Andrew, that's been... It's, it's, it's funny, you know, it's funny to talk to you about this, really, for the first time in 25 years, because, you know, obviously when we were... Uh, I mean, for those who don't know, I was doing... I was, I was uh, in the PR department at Penguin at the time when it came out, and so I was, I was the chap who's put in charge of doing the, the publicity for, for, for Stalingrad. So Antje and I spent a lot of time careering around the country doing, you know, going to talks and Waterstones book signings and, and what have you, and setting up interviews and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember you suddenly got, you got that absolute raft of, of incredible reviews, didn't you? The, I think the first one was a times, if I remember rightly. And, and we, we, you suddenly sensed you were onto, onto something. It was, it was incredible. And you were in the process of buying your house in, in Kent at the same time. So there was an awful lot going on. Um, but I, this is the first time really that we've, we've had a chat about it since then. So it's, it's amazing knowing what I know now compared to what I know then to sort of contextualize what it, what, it, what it is you did. And all I can say is I, I am completely in awe of what you achieved with that book. Um, it, it's a phenomenal, it remains an absolutely phenomenal piece of work. Um, and I, as I say, I, I can't see how it can ever be, be bettered really, um, as a, as a, picture of what it was like at stalingrad so um it's been brilliant to have you on anthony on this 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 stalingrad week that we're doing on the podcast thank you Um, so much for joining us yeah it's been fantastic thanks everyone for listening we'll see you again very soon cheerio cheerio bye